Okay, <clears throat> welcome back. Good morning. Uh, I'm pleased to report that I saw a six-foot Taiwan beauty snake yesterday uh, slithering on the big tree next to my patio. Yellow color, um, light patterning of sort of diamondback style. Taiwan beauty snake um, a couple of years ago, um, I think his ancestor, um, maybe his father, mother, grandmother, grandfather, something, perhaps, uh, was uh, taking a nap behind my shoe rack outside my front door, about three feet from the front door, also about a four-foot, five-foot snake, um, but I didn't freak, and uh, he, uh, after the day, after the heat went away that day a few years ago, he went away. Also, there was known to be two snake eggs under my floorboards discovered when they fixed the floor a few years ago. This is stories of the Taiwan wilderness. Uh, and I have a feeling that this snake was, in my uh, imagining, was uh, coming to say hello, because he basically kind of came near me, <laughs> slithering on the tree, and then kind of uh, made a move, and then went away and found another place to go. So maybe he was saying, thank you for being kind to my, my grandparents. Or something like that, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's a, a, a interesting thing to see a six-foot snake slithering on a tree in front of me, uh, and so and the little cat just jumped and grabbed a uh, lizard and ate the lizard whole just about an, ten minutes ago. So uh, springtime has come. I await the cockroach kingdom coming to visit at night periodically. Uh, things are moving right along here. So, uh, otherwise, um, the world situation is quite dramatic, and um, I hope people are taking good care of yourselves and thinking clearly, and um, working through emotional distress and fear. Um, it's a difficult time, um, and um, we really need to. <coughs> um, appreciate coming back to balance internally and inner working and um, having faith in ourselves that we'll do our best with whatever comes and um, unfortunately the collective is uh, much beyond our ability to influence dramatically or significantly so with that said today I want to conclude the reading of um, 13th Sutta of uh, second chapter of Sutta Nipata, Sama Paribhajanya, right wandering or um, right going forth. And we'll use the translation from Tanasaro Bhikkhu. Uh, his brief write-up is the sort of person who, having gone forth, is fit to wander through the world. I don't think that's very accurate, actually. It's not the sort of person. It's, it's basically uh, advice given by Gautama during the great assembly to a certain cla a certain category of devas and brahmas uh, who particularly had attachment to desire um, narrating f for that particular category of higher dimensional biased beings higher dimensional beings with the particular bias towards attachment to sensuality uh, which needs to be unpacked further. Uh, it's not physical, fleshy sensuality. It's basically the tendency of desire and grasping versus the tendency to aversion or ignorance or some other qualities, which we'll look at others. Uh, for that type of higher dimensional being attached significantly to desire and craving and hunger um, and grasping, uh, for that type of mind, uh, a narration really of what the bhikkhu or the monk, the left-hand one who goes forth, how they live, going from ignorance to full awakening. Uh, it's a very nice summation of the sequence of one version of a se of the sequence um, f uh, by which. Uh, an entity, a soul, a human, or being 
becomes a monk or goes uh, uh, takes the the gone forth life goes forth from the current um, conditions not simply family or home or home or uh, householder which is the human way right the the monk is the person who's left the household life or the family life or the social life here we're talking about higher dimensional beings who have the predilection to desire and grasping uh, going forth attitudinally I'd say so again this is my own interpretation I'm not a Buddhist scholar everybody disagrees you have to say you know even Buddhist scholars real Buddhist scholars have all sorts of disagreement about all sorts of things and okay and this sutta addresses that too the reality of disagreements doctrinally ideologically so it's a very nice overview of the sequence by which an entity or a person or a monk a person that becomes a monk goes forth towards complete and perfect enlightenment goes forth from the current status quo um, of life circumstance as well as mind or particularly of mind from the current to a future um, greater freedom release clarity uh, which ultimately would culminate in nirvana which is really you know leaving the octave which is an interesting matter from I'm going to review quickly <clears throat> the the sources there are all sorts of things going on because the weather's hot now if you hear me <laughs> interrupt myself I see something falling outside the window I'll let you know starting from the great chronicle of Buddhas from Mingun Sayadaw the uh, Burmese you know <laughs> Maha Siddha who had a great memory um, I last time ended with his section on expounding the Maha Samaya Sutta, which again is a six-part sutta. This one today about going forth is just one of them. Uh, explaining, setting the scene um, where um, the 500 bhikkhus who uh, went from Sotapanna to, to Arahan in a short space of time were gathered around Gautama and um, the moon appeared rising from the top of Mount Yugandara in the eastern hemisphere free from the five kinds of obstructions and the moon in its fullness assumed the form of a framed disk of a silver mirror or the frame of a silver wheel turning round and round on its edge hanging high above the eastern horizon shining with all its brightness as if to reveal the world that was made delightful and pleasurable by the appearance of the enlightened Buddha or Gautama. So it's a very <laughs> special setting. <clears throat> uh, down the page, um, Mingun Sayadog brings the commentary uh, associated with um, the Gautama's intention. And so this is from the section, again, this is the wisdomlib.org page, <clears throat> sections, devas and brahmas, as well as the Buddha, formed ideas of their own. <laughs> and um, the complexity here is more than I can handle in an hour because this could be done for many hours but in the uh, third paragraph <clears throat> um, this is the division of the assembly from Gautama's perspective giving rise to the six suttas that collectively are called Mahasamaya Sutta paragraph starts again Amongst those who would gain release from samsara, the Buddha divided them mentally into six groups according to their inclinations, viz, or namely, devas and brahmas with a propensity for lust and craving, which is raga chittam, devas and brahmas with a propensity for aversion, aversion, devas and brahmas with propensity for delusion, so here are the three poisons, right, grasping, aversion, and ignorance, also called lust, craving, which is basically desire. The second aversion is, you know, rejectionism or uh, oppositionalism <clears throat> or hatred or ill will. And then delusion, which is also ignorance, which is um, associated with a, a clouded mind, clouded reason, um, mental blockage 
or excess. So the mind that cannot think clearly, the mind that cannot stop thinking, <clears throat> the mind that is foggy, the mind that is uh, congested. That's the third class Gautama was addressing. The fourth, devas and brahmas with propensity for thought conception. And so you're getting to actually the community of the devas and brahmas in attendance from increasingly higher dimensions of the 31 planes, where those that were particularly of Kamaloka are those that in the first three classes, grasping aversion ignorance, people people or higher dimensional beings, with the propensity for the three poisons, more associated with those from higher dimensions of Kamaloka, which is really third density inner planes, uh, not necessarily even what we would call fourth density in the raw material. Then we have classes four, five, six, which would be beings with propensity for thought conception, propensity for faith, and propensity for wisdom. Thought conception is really um, the ability to think, <laughs> conceive, or produce thought. Uh, and now we really getting into higher, um, higher than third density beings, I'd say. Um, and we see the division where uh, the last two categories are faith and wisdom. Faith is sraddha, and wisdom is panya or prajna in Sanskrit. And that is, so those are virtuous qualities, faith and wisdom, <clears throat> also called love and wisdom. Very similar. Love and faith are very closely related. Faith is, at best, I think, very much a fourth chakra, sixth chakra affair. And wisdom is very clearly fifth chakra related. And so now we're talking about beings in attendance at the Mahasamaya who were already free of the three poisons to some degree uh, and were well settled in some virtuous qualities, but they hadn't um, been free of those or free of them, or free of attachment to them. It's not that we should be free of faith or free of wisdom, but free of grasping at that and conceiving them in ways that are um, that, that lead to binding and suffering and rebirth. So this is a little bit more subtle, like teaching beings that are already settled in the virtues of faith and wisdom, particularly. But those are the other, the higher two classes of the six that Gautama was addressing here. This sutta today, um, <coughs> uh, also called Sama Paribhajanya, or right going forth, I'll just call it, uh, is addressed to the first of those six classes, those that were more, uh, had major a propensity for again, lust and craving, but it's really not, it's not like everybody's that if you're not lustful, then you're free of it. It's various forms of desire, desire for bodily form-based experience. And we all have that to some degree, obviously. So then, uh, the next paragraph, then of the six groups, he, Gautama, decided that devas and brahmas with an inclination towards lust and craving, or desire, art should be taught sama paribhajaniya sutta. And that's that. Those with tendency to aversion were taught other, another sutta, and those with the various other propensities, delusion, thought conception, faith, and wisdom would be taught other suttas during the time of the entirety of the Mahasamaya Sutta uh, assembly, the assembly uh, on that place, <laughs> at that place where there were all these higher dimensional beings. As I brought last time, Mahasi Sayadaw does an excellent overview and detail of the Sutta, Sama Paribhajanya. And <clears throat> I'm not going to read his um, detail, but again repeat the introduction, which will lead us straight into the Sutta itself. So first, his understanding is the correct, the, the understanding of the title is the correct homeless life or right wandering, right going forth. And the early stages of uh, the progression here is pretty obvious. We're talking about somebody who's going into a deep, an increasingly deeper appreciation of Buddha Dhamma, and then practice, and then self-restraint and development, and then achievement. 
and then freedom and release. So in the so we the, the sequence goes, which is his rundown, which we'll read in a moment, the sutta stanzas. Discard all superstitions, <clears throat> dispelling false beliefs is important. Bhikkhus and secular auspicious signs abstain from and so that's moving to uh, appreciating Buddha Dhamma as different than other ideologies and other traditions. Then, <clears throat> abstain from sensual pleasures, meaning <laughs> go forth from attachment. Contemplate the noble truths, four noble truths. Reject prejudice and hatred, and you see here we're talking about the, the transit from Shila to Samadhi and Prajna. So first it's um, see the difference between the teaching of Buddha Dhamma or Buddhism, but again <laughs> Tibetan and Chinese Mayana and Thai or Burmese Theravada are all different in some ways. So there's no one Buddhism, just like there's no one astrology or no one New Age uh, seeker or something like that. But the first here is dropping false ideologies or unhelpful, uh, magically based, um, what would be called superstitions, moving into an appreciation of Buddha Dhamma teaching and then applying it through Shila Samadhi Prajna. Shila being ethics or virtue or morality, Samadhi being concentration, um, meditation, which is in many, you know, commonly uh, Vipassana mindfulness practice, and self-restraint in thought, word, and deed, or a commitment to right thought, or particularly right um, speech, right action, right livelihood. And these are part of the Eightfold Path, uh, Shila, going to Samadhi and Prajna, Samadhi, the mental training, leading to Prajna wisdom, which is also discernment, which is also seeing the nature um, of what is, seeing beyond illusion, seeing clearly the three marks, anicca dukkha, seeing, and you'll see in the sutta uh, how that uh, clear seeing is described by Gautama in this sutta. Uh, so, contemplate the noble truths, reject prejudice and hatred, uh, one must abide in equanimity, the value of equanimity. Do not delight in sensual objects. Do no harm by body, speech, and thought. A bhikkhu must not be proud, and this is as um, the bhikkhu, and uh, for us as a sincere seeker of development, um, makes some development. Starts to understand, in this case, Buddha Dhamma or truth. Um, metaphysical truth of uh, transformation, self-transformation, mind transformation, and um, has some um, development, then must not be proud or not get stuck in pride. Bhikkhu has abandoned greed. One must know the true Dhamma. <clears throat> some latent defilements are eradicated, and this is as defilements is a srava or a shava, and I'll talk about that later. Some latent defilements are eradicated. Obviously, they'd all have to be eradicated <clears throat> to be free of <clears throat> reincarnation in the octave. The bhikkhu has rejected conceit, and that really would be eighth fetter broken. So the fetters are not the same as the defilements. <laughs> Ten fetters and um, three or four ashravas are defilements. The bhikkhu has rejected conceit <laughs> at a very high level only. Uh, lots of people who um, <laughs> follow Buddhism and are smart um, and know the doctrine very well have a bit of conceit and arrogance. It's very common. <clears throat> uh, and people will, you know, think they're free of it, but we really have distortions. We could, to, to, be, to say I'm free of distortion, I'm free of this distortion, is almost always short-sighted and um, mistaken. I would never say I'm free of any distortion. How do I know? How do I know that I know? How do I know I? How do I know my sense of oh, I'm free of this distortion is true? I don't know. Who, how could I know? I don't know. Somebody better than me or more developed would have to tell me. I guess I could trust him, but uh, I can't. 
I don't know how we could ever say we've finished any healing or we're finished with some distortion. It seems very arrogant, conceited, a minor, you know, derivative level of conceit to presume that because it doesn't arise, or I think it doesn't arise, that I don't have it. So, uh, initially, people have um, the distortions associated with non-development. Later, people have the distortions associated with moderate development. Then they have certain very subtle distortions associated with significant distor- significant development. I mean, it's only the Arahan who's free of, uh, of, the, of grasping aversion and ignorance fully, actually. It's only the, the last, the end of the path, one is free of conceit, actually. And so all the bhikkhus and all the monks and all the people and all the beings that are not yet finished with sixth density, <laughs> uh, with, with any sense of separative selfhood, not finished with memory and identity, if there's still an experience of conceptually based mem- identity, and uh, experienced memory of supposed past, present, future, one is not finished with conceit. And so, we shouldn't fool ourselves. So, some latent defilements are eradicated, but not all yet. Then, the bhikkhu has rejected conceit, being full of faith and conviction, the bhikkhu, and then finally, the bhikkhu has escaped from the three cycles, I think it's the three loka, the bhikkhu lives in the present, and so then there's no more past and future, but it's all now. This is, again, to, looks to me like movement out of 6th to 7th density. Uh, having realized the noble truths, meaning all of them, meaning finished with the noble path, the Eightfold Path, meaning got to the point of Nibbana, or has made that release, and then knowledge of that release. Having realized the noble truths, and then the Nimitta Buddha that, that Gautama projected as the questioner for these six suttas of the Mahasamaya assembly said to Gautama himself <laughs> you, me uh, your answers are correct I did a good job said he Got to Gautama now that's the brief rundown from Mahasi Sayada uh, the main portions uh, main points in the sequence of the sutta let me read it now <clears throat> and let me check the time wow, running fast so, uh, Tanasaro Bhikkhu, translation uh, of the Sutta, right going forth or wandering. And so the Nimitta Buddha, projected by Gautama, asks Gautama um, uh, a question that Gautama will answer in these sections, uh, addressed to the Devas and the Brahmas and anyone and us, if we can understand it. Uh, for those with a greater propensity for lust, craving, desire, grasping, um, holding and wanting and taking in. I like it, I want it, I think I need it, I got to have it, I want it, uh, I can't live without it, or I got to get it. Uh, and ultimately, it's just impossible to be free of that uh, until one's fully enlightened. And so even conceit, eighth fetter, could be considered the result of grasping. Absolutely. It's a, it's a certain kind of craving for becoming or non-becoming. It's a very subtle level of holding on. Craving for a, a substantial identity. <laughs> um, craving for conceptually based identity. Uh, is uh, one of the bases of eighth fetter conceit, I'd say, and so desire runs all the way up the the thirty one planes until the end. Only at the end is one finished with that. So let's do it. Um, Sama Paribajaniya Sutta, Nimitta Sutta start. Nimitta Buddha asks, I ask the sage of abundant discernment. That's Prajna, crossed over to the far shore totally unbound, steadfast in mind, leaving home, rejecting sensuality, how does one wander rightly in the world? And this wander rightly in the world is the catchphrase at the end of each of the stanzas, very similar to um, wander alone like a rhinoceros. This is wander rightly in the world, meaning go forth into the many, seeking freedom from illusion and bondage. (laughs) 
and the Buddha Gautama replies, and this is the first stage. And now we'll see that this goes through Mahasi Sayadaw's uh, summation of these stages. Gautama replies, Whoever's omens are uprooted, as are meteors, dreams, and marks, <clears throat> whose fault of omens is completely abandoned, he would wander rightly in the world. A monk should subdue passion for sensualities human and even divine, having gone past becoming, Baba, and met with the Dhamma, he should or would wander rightly in the world. <clears throat> Putting behind him divisive tail-bearing, a monk should abandon anger and meanness. With favoring and opposing totally abandoned, he would wander rightly in the world. Having abandoned dear and undear, independent through no clinging, no um, tanha, as uh, upadana, no ta no upadana, independent through no clinging of anything at all, fully released from fetters, he would wander rightly in the world. He finds no essence in acquisitions, having subdued passion desire for graspings. Independent is he, by others unled, he would wander rightly in the world. Having rightly found the Dhamma, he is unobstructed in speech, mind, and act. Aspiring to unbinding, he would wander rightly in the world. A monk who'd not gloat, he venerates me, or brood when insulted, or be elated on receiving food from another, he would wander rightly in the world. Fully abandoning greed and becoming, abstaining from cutting and binding other beings, he, having crossed over doubt, de-arrowed, he would wander rightly in the world. <clears throat> having found what's appropriate for himself, the monk wouldn't harm anyone in the world. Having found the Dhamma as it actually is, he would wander rightly in the world. In whom there are no obsessions, his unskillful roots uprooted, with no longing, no expectations, he would wander rightly in the world. His effluence, his ashravas, ended, conceit, eighth fetter, abandoned, beyond reach of every road to passion, tamed, totally unbound, steadfast in mind, he would wander rightly in the world. Convinced, learned, having seen certainty, not following factions among those who are factious, enlightened, his greed, aversion, and irritation subdued, he would wander rightly in the world. Victorious, pure, his roof opened up, a master of dhammas, gone beyond and unperturbed, skilled in the knowledge of fabrication cessation, the cessation of all that is fabricated, he would wander rightly in the world. Gone beyond speculations about futures and pasts, and having passed by, purified in his discernment, fully released from all sense media, he would wander rightly in the world. Knowing the state, meeting the Dhamma, seeing the opened up when his effluence are abandoned from the ending of all acquisitions, he would wander rightly in the world. And <clears throat> then the Nimitta Buddha, who asked the question, replies, Yes, blessed one, that's just how it is. Any monk dwelling thus, tamed, gone totally beyond all things conducive for fetters, he would wander rightly in the world. <clears throat> and so, uh, the sequence is pretty clear. At the beginning, the first two, or three, or five, <laughs> are common um, fields of distortion. Uh, in the first, omens need to be uprooted, meteors, dreams, and marks, fault of omens. It's really a lower psychism, um, not simply as crude as something like doing voodoo for to, to stick pins in effigies to get some advantage. 
<clears throat> but um, over overdoing the importance of other systems that the Buddhist would think are uh, subsidiary, secondary, not important, or false. <clears throat> like astrology, right? I mean, I think astrology is useful, and, and uh, I would defer to Nityananda on it in the case of the woman who came with a very bad Saturn configuration, portending illness or death. Uh, he basically said, yes, Saturn is here, or Saturn is there in the chart, but uh, God is here too, which means there's something, there's a there's higher, higher power than the, the interplanetary astrological. The astrological is um, associated with the logoic, or the planetary and uh, sign influences. And to me, it's very real. Um, but I think some people make too much of a big deal out of it and seem to say, that's why I'm this way. <clears throat> that's one level of why anyone is the way they are or faces what they face. Before that is the karmic. Uh, one's chart um, drawn up at the point or time of birth is <laughs> associated with the higher self-decision to be born at that location at that time. Why does the higher self choose to have uh, my body spirit complex incarnate at a certain time at a certain location? Well, <laughs> it's associated with one's karmic stream, one's uh, liabilities from the past, uh, specific purposes of the incarnation, um, needed experience of uh, limitation or opportunity. Um, very much associated with the work and uh, the work of a certain lifetime, yeah. But looking at the causes of the astrological um, is probably the only safe way to go deep into the astrological. Saith I, meaning uh, I have this planet in this house in this or this planet in that sign in that house. Uh, with a relation and aspect to the other planets and other houses and signs. Why? Well, what tendencies are they? Well, I better work in the tendencies rather than get stuck in chart analysis because really, um, while the astrological is in play, the interplanetary or the planetary, uh, the working is caused by that which is prior to it. Uh, or that the, that configuration the configurations are um, a reflection they're actually for the purpose I mean what's the purpose of studying astrology it's to work on distortion or to be free of it to do the work on the seven chakras to follow the Buddhist path to follow any path to total seven chakra mind body spirit perfection transformation of course what else so <clears throat> it's important to um not get stuck in the form but go to the essence for which the form presents itself the form of the field of astrology uh, subdue passion for sensualities um, I honestly think that, that people have much more subtle levels of desire today um, or at least we do um, and this is uh, basically the whole realm of desire and grasping <coughs> um, and it just depends on at what stage of development we're at as to what's the nature of our um, currently up for release or processing distortions and desires. You know, distort desire as a category of distortion, uh, like the three poisons, grasping, aversion, ignorance. There's also anger-based and fear and uh, mind confused based distortions working on desire is really ultimately going to be shown when we have an emotional triggering to not having what we want whatever we want whenever we have an emotional triggering meaning we have an emotional charge that's triggered by catalyst or circumstance um, it's an indication that we're not generally getting what that a, a desire is being uh, stymied a desire a longing a grasping a seeking to grasp is being frustrated what is it <laughs> why am i making this why do i have this emotional charge reaction to this 
loss or denial of what I want. Why do I want what I want? <laughs> First, we have to know what we want. Then we have to know, or we need to <laughs> look into, why is this such a big deal to me? Why do I need um, exclusivity in this partnership? Mm. <laughs> I'm not saying we shouldn't have that. That's commonly called trust and monogamy and commitment. Uh, but why, um, why am I so upset? Uh, what is it that I want <clears throat> that I'm not getting? I mean, that may be very easy to say. Somebody says no, or somebody shows that they're doing their their way is not what we wish it to be. Um, some inner contemplation would be useful. Uh, why is it so important to me to have this, to get this, to have it my way? And um, it may be a core need or not, meaning there's some sort of non-negotiables, on uh, some non-compromisables, uh, and we should know. Uh, on the other hand, there are certain areas where we can make do with not having better than we thought. Oh. I didn't know I didn't need it. Oh, I'm actually okay not having it. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. And that's um, a little bit more refined than simply subdue passion for sensualities. As if everybody's salivating, lusting for things physical and fleshy all the time. That That's not the whole of it. That's a very elementary initial level. <clears throat> desires are much the, the the realms of the the multitudinous objects of desire or tendencies of desire for various objects and this and that and and uh, all sorts of uh, interpersonal subtleties I need you to listen to what I'm saying really um, maybe you do maybe you don't some 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 cases yes and some cases no some cases one may realize I don't need it. <clears throat> Other cases, one may realize it is non-negotiable. <laughs> and so this is a very subtle uh, analysis of the emotional charge that may come up when we're ultimately having a desire frustrated. Then this is putting, putting behind him divisive tail-bearing, abandoned anger and meanness. Don't be mean or cruel. <clears throat> That's malicious speech. Um, Tail-bearing is sort of delighting in others' harm, delighting in others' pain, delighting in others' uh, distortion. And um, as Rick Wiles once said, something like, the Lord doesn't delight in the punishment of the wicked. There's certainly a lot of wicked humans, I don't know, a lot, numerically, more than would fill my room. I don't know, is that a lot? So, it looks like a lot to me. It's more a lot than more than where I'm from. <clears throat> and um, they'll be punished. I mean, I can't imagine how many people from this current time are going to end up in hell after this lifetime. It, it seems to me they're, they're signing up left and right. So, um, meanwhile, <laughs> let the Lord sort them out. And um, karma will take care of it, as always. The karmic law is an operation. So don't make trouble for yourself by uh, any form of rejoicing or um, self-gratification in the distortion or the punishment of the distorted. And <clears throat> then there's a phrase, with favoring and opposing totally abandoned. Does that mean that the monk doesn't favor Buddhism? The monk doesn't oppose materialism? Well, the monk would know, or the one that's clearer, as far as I could tell, would know <clears throat> um, that system over there looks quite distorted. The other system over there doesn't look too distorted to me, but I can see some things that I think are mistaken. Um, yeah, I favor Buddhism, but if you don't follow me, it's fine with me. You can do whatever you want. Um, without favoring and opposing seems to mean more like not being attached to or heavily emotionally invested in favoring and opposing. Down the page you'll see um, <clears throat> let me see 
convinced, learned, having seen certainty, having some certainty about what is and what isn't, or what's true and what's false, not following factions among those who are factious. So there are a lot of people who are factious, meaning they like division, they like factionalism. My way, not your way. Burmese Buddhism, not Thai Buddhism. <laughs> Theravada, not Mahayana. <clears throat> For me, I mean, like everyone, um, everyone who is moderately sincere, <laughs> I like to find truth. I like to find what I think is true. And I think it's true if it makes sense and accords with phenomena and whose utilization brings benefit. Utilization of a particular piece of advice, if it leads to long-term welfare and benefit or some kind of benefit, real greater well-being, that is indicative that that piece of advice is true or useful or valuable because of its positive consequences. Um, but that's not necessarily following factions and being factious. Um, not getting caught in the thicket of views, as Gautama said, <clears throat> is um, not just, as it said here, gone beyond speculations, but also uh, not, getting, uh, not getting stuck in uh, pro and con, uh, attack and defense. This is very, very important these days because there's so many, there's so many phenomena, there's, a, there's such complexity of environmental phenomena, <clears throat> political, economic, ideological, religious, spiritual, doctrinal. I mean, humanity is really at 3.7. <clears throat> and there's this profusion of mental activity um, in the seventh subplane of the third density cycle. The third, the last subplane, temporal subplane of the third density cycle, one three five seven, right? Seventh is the on the the hard line. <clears throat> one three five seven of chakras. To me, um, e e that's a metaphysical basis of what I see as a massive proliferation of uh, opinion and divisive uh, attachment or attachment to opinion. And divisiveness and faction, factionality, fractional faction, uh, factiousness. Lots of struggle, lots of struggle, outer and inner. <clears throat> and um, the the teaching here is not following factions, and um, ultimately not being uh, factious, meaning a divisive or argumentative or aggressive if I think somebody's wrong I leave them alone right if it's crooked I leave it alone um, it's very harmful to us to get caught in attack and defense actually it's like I don't know why anybody who doesn't like what I'm saying would be listening to me <laughs> I don't like any I don't like to listen to people that I don't think are helpful why would anybody who's who doesn't like this be here it's too weird why would anybody who doesn't like something stay there? Leave. Find something that's good for you. Don't stay with what you don't like. It's very odd. <clears throat> so, abandon the deer and the undeer. <laughs> don't get caught in attachment to dislike and attachment to like. Because everything changes, right? Everything is uh, moving right along. And so, the... <clears throat> teaching Buddhist teaching of detachment is no different than the Taoist uh, teaching of Wu Wei. Ultimately, Wu Wei is a condensed teaching um, of um, coming from the the Buddhist philosophy of the three marks, three characteristics, and Nichanata Dukkha. <clears throat> um, all of our experience, mm, while the mind is not free of craving, free of clinging free of ignorance, free of conceit, uh, the experience for all of us who are not free of all that is one of impermanence, continual change, and insubstantiality, or no self, or no uh, eternality in phenomena, and that's dukkha, or stressful, or dissatisfactory, or, or um, not, uh, not enduringly lovely. Uh, and... <laughs> 
knowing that as much as we can, um, one would be content to um, accept what I can't change and um, dissolve attachment when the consequences have been painful because um, pantare, everything keeps flowing. So um, that's the, some of the, the common ground, I think, between Taoist and Heraclitian and Buddhist Theravadan, <clears throat> the three marks, and Wu Wei, and Pantare from Heraclitus, everything flows. Because of that, um, wise detachment is crucial. And that doesn't mean I don't feel. It means I'm okay that I'm in pain. And I don't try to grasp... I don't, I don't meet my pain and distortion with grasping and aversion. I don't make a home in the pain, and I don't get stuck in hating it or trying to avoid it. I try not to avoid it. If I feel pain, I feel the pain. And I try not to make a big narrative or self-pity or make an identity out of being some victim or some uh, crusader for the right in the, in the world of the wrong. <laughs> All of that is dropped. And so that's, I think, associated with abandoning dear and undear, independent through no clinging of anything at all. And eventually, that leads to full release from the fetters. On the Wikipedia page of the etymology of the word asrava, asava, according to Bhikkhu Bodhi, who I think we can trust, has said the commentaries, meaning the uh, various commentaries, Abhidhamma, Pitaka, and others, and, and enlightened teachers derive the word asava from the root su, which means to flow. And I've talked about this in the Pure Dhamma write-up long, long ago. Scholars differ as to whether the flow implied by the prefix a is inward or outward. <laughs> right? Hence, some have rendered it as influxes or influences coming in, others as outflows or effluence going out, flowing in, flowing out their distorted mind flow. This is distorted mind flow. Flow in, flow out. That's all. Distorted mind flow. I mean, the mind itself is sort of illusionary, but aside from that, distorted mind flow. And the next write-up paragraph here, Ajahn Suchito, who, who I met at um, Abayagiri uh, Ashram, Sangha Abayagiri in Northern California, very good guy. Ajahn Suchito, in his book Karma and the End of or Kamma and the End of Kamma, describe asavas as underlying biases. Very fine translation. That fabricate things, emotions, sensations, responses which condition grasping through which samsara operates. So there's samsara, which is apparently outer, or the personal rebirth, reincarnative process, which is apparently inner, in an apparently outer. <laughs> dimensional matrix uh, come uh, uh, asavas as underlying biases are could also be called as uh, fundamental mind distortions fundamental mind flow distortions or mind flowing distortion flows the flow of conscious and subconscious mind tendencies that are distorted <laughs> which means um, clinging in any way or believing uh, conceptually self-reified self-reificatory conception and so uh, to be free of that is kind of uh, quite advanced uh, but we're moving that way more or less uh, <clears throat> this fully released from fetters is finished the ten and the end of the path. Find no essence in acquisitions, again, is relating to anatta, the second of the three marks. And uh, there is that, it is a very important reflection that um, the happiness I feel now having gotten something itself is impermanent, and what I've gotten is impermanent, and there is no abiding sub, uh, eternity, eternality to it. Like, I buy 
um, a lovely uh, jade bracelet, and I'm happy. Um, a year later, I don't have the same feeling. I still like it, but there isn't that thrill of, oh my god, it's so beautiful, or something like that. <clears throat> and um, that's because there's no essence in the mind process uh, whatsoever. <laughs> Pain and sukha and dukkha, or what we like and what we don't like, or positive and negative. There's no essence or um, unchanging substantiality in our reaction to um, the eight worldly winds as well. And that's another uh, set of catalysts um, to which we react periodically with distorted emotional charge or have been triggered by gain and loss, uh, pleasure and pain, praise and blame, uh, social honor and dishonor. And so physical, mental, spiritual, social, particularly physical, mental, social, physical, emotional, mental, social. Uh, this is the eight worldly winds there um, need not blow us around or we need not sway in the wind. Those are winds, yeah. Um, we might get blamed, we might get honored, we might get, we do get loss, we do get gain, and um, pleasure and pain. Uh, knowing insubstantiality and impermanence to whatever degree we can, um, we'll sway less when those winds blow. Independent is he by others unled. And that's also, there's a lot of uh, real plum, plum uh, phrases here. Um, <clears throat> not only was this a very special occasion, but um, it's very pith teaching. Uh, not being led by others, <laughs> except when one must and can't go independently, or voluntarily of free will wishes or allows one to be led. I mean, it's good to, you know, ultimately I think all activity comes out of self-interest. That doesn't mean it's particularly, it's metaphysically born of self-interest. You can't, no activity, no motivation, no intention can be without self-interest for as long as a being has conceit, eighth fetter, sense of self. Clearly. And so, okay, fine. Only someone, only the arhan is free of self-interest because they're free of conceit, because they're free of the eighth fetter, because they realize that <laughs> self, any, any conception and any uh, scent, S-C-E-N-T, any scent or subtle, deepest mind, subtle impression of substantial selfhood is illusory and empty and just a dream. <clears throat> Only that one is free of self-interest. So, fine. Uh, total self-sacrifice may come out of self-interest. Likewise, letting others lead us um, is fine, if you think that's best. Um... Uh, yes, it comes from self-interest, um, but I think the point is that uh, peer pressure has been put in its place, and <clears throat> um, real self-determination would be highly valued. Independent is he, by others unled, you're not, you're not letting yourself be dominated by others, and it is very important. And unfortunately, it's very. It requires a lot of um, vigilance uh, because a lot of people are manipulative um, unconsciously. Because a lot of people <laughs> have been manipulated by others unconsciously, <clears throat> and so people have internalized those patterns. And there's a hell of a lot of selfishness around. If you don't like it, leave. <laughs> you know, why do you stay? And so, uh, I. I personally value um, self-determination greatly. Um, and then there are certain problems that can come from that, absolutely, like an attachment to self-determination. So, it's very deep and very subtle. Uh, unobstructed in speech, mind, and act. Not self-obstructing. Aspiring to unbinding. I really want to be free. Uh, and that doesn't, you know, sometimes we can't have a physical freedom 
or obviously our lives are very limited in terms of physical freedom. Even if you are a so-called free man, you know, you're in the big house. <laughs> there's the, the, the small house called the jail, and there's the big house called 3D Earth, incarnation. It's a kind of big prison planet, some people would say. Uh, it could be said that way. It may be, clearly we may feel that sometimes. Um, for those who remember life in higher dimensions, yeah, this is very limiting. Uh, and yet, we chose to be here, and so um, it's a matter of increasingly freeing ourselves from obstructions in mind. Um, it's obstructions in mind that lead to the experience and experience of obstruction in body, actually. Aspiring to unbinding. And then, when indeed we have some development, <clears throat> um, we may get some people who think we're wonderful. He venerates me. So the monk doesn't gloat. He venerates me. Um, there's some sense of, well, okay, <laughs> I'm glad you like me. Um, somebody just said this to me the other day. She said, oh, you're a great man. I don't know what to say to that. I'm not going to say, yes, I am. I don't think it's true. Maybe I should say, I just said, thank you, you're very sweet. <laughs> thank you, you're very kind. I don't know. Don't talk. I don't like that kind of talk. Then there's being insulted. Some people like insulting. They get off on it. Uh, brood when insulted. It really means don't get stuck in brooding <laughs> if you get insulted. Uh, we can't not have distortion, but we can meet distortion with love-wisdom. And that's the distillation of love-light, love-wisdom from catalyst to a purified, polarized experience. Uh, in accord with Ra's understanding of the third and fourth positions on the seven stages of the um, mind-body-spirit cycles of the Tarot Major Arcana, if you know what I'm talking about. Uh, the purification of catalyst into experience by distillation of love-light means meeting our distortions with um, acceptance and understanding and discernment and forgiveness. Um, that's a big piece of work. Finally, <clears throat> um, I could just go on and on. Having found what's appropriate for himself, the monk wouldn't harm anyone in the world. Um, this is very, very important, right? Find what is your way. Find what you need. Know what you need. Know what you don't need. Know what is non-negotiable. Know what is negotiable, because uh, it's not that important. I like it, I want it, but I don't need it. I mean, the Buddhist, the monk's approach is different because they're really seeking complete and perfect enlightenment in this lifetime. I'm not, actually. And so some might say, oh, then you shouldn't talk. Really? Are you helping the world? Good. Help the world. So, uh, <clears throat> found what's appropriate for himself. And this is sort of um, sincere self-determination. Uh, deep self-knowing and the fruit of right self-determination meaning autonomy meaning not being led meaning leading yourself comes from knowing what you truly need or value most highly seeking it rightly and then finding it having known having sought to know and then knowing and then rightly seeking and then finding what he knows is important, necessary, appropriate for himself. <laughs> That's all embedded in that phrase, I'd say. The monk wouldn't hurt him anywhere in the world. So, harmlessness coming from deep self-fulfillment. Self, whatever, there's no self, don't worry about it. <clears throat> self is just a phrase used to indicate, you know, illusory identity. <clears throat> but harmlessness comes out of... Um, uh, I would say spiritual and metaphysical self-fulfillment, <clears throat> and that that's very much different than grasping and aversion. Um, found what's appropriate for himself is really finding the ending of un, of, of of grasping and aversion. <clears throat> what's appropriate for me is um, a greater freedom, a greater well-being that comes from wise seeking and wise discernment and wise detachment 
or discernment and wise detachment, then um, the tendencies to hurt others um, are radically decreased. Anger goes down, too. There would be <clears throat> the one who is the most well is the most ahimsa. The greatest ahimsa comes from the greatest upeka, equanimity. So deep well-being, deep well-being, equanimity, upeka, um, is a, I'd say, a fundamental basis of deep, um, natural, unforced ahimsa, which is harmlessness. Then, <clears throat> for that one, clearly there are no obsessions, um, no longing, no expectations. Right? Don't expect because uh, that one is found. No longing because they know <clears throat> rather than getting stuff or fulfilling desires or getting stuck in factiousness, um, they've moved to equanimity, equanimity and a greater freedom and release, if not perfected yet, at least quite well. And so, <clears throat> other important points um, tamed, totally unbound, steadfast in mind. So, self taming is yoke or yoga. Um, this is a yoga path, <laughs> the path of yoking or rest wise restraint, um, and according mind and behavior and speech with what's truly beneficial for self and other. Convinced, learned, having seen certainty, meaning some certainty has been experienced. This is very important. And those that don't have that don't know what it is. And those that don't have real certainty of emptiness, it's really the certainty of knowing something what's, that is um, beyond birth and death. <clears throat> um, they don't We wouldn't know that uh, without... We wouldn't know certainty when there's no certainty. That sounds silly, but that... Um, it's sort of like, it doesn't matter what you think or say, uh, I know what is. And that doesn't generate pride at all. <clears throat> what is, is what is. <laughs> and um, one may, anyone may, may glimpse it. Uh, not following factions among the factious. His roof is opened up. The bucket bottom is broken. The roof opened up is an old image um, simile, metaphor of uh, the monk in the hut and the phrase at the bottom of the page <clears throat> I'm going to wrap up soon is is from uh, Udana I think it is and um, Teragata I think, I'm not sure but from some of the songs of the elders um, talking about their experience a very lovely book Rains, a portion of the, of the uh, Sutta Pitaka I believe Rain soddens what's covered and doesn't sodden what's open. So open up what's covered up so that it won't get soddened by the rain. <laughs> the rain is um, particularly of three poisons and craving, clinging, grasping, aversion, ignorance, the fetters, the uh, defilements, ashravas, distorted mental flows and biases. Uh, <clears throat> open Take your take your seal take the ceiling off your house, and knock out the bottom of the bucket. Um, that's ultimately the ending of eighth fetter conceit, I'd say. Then, uh, to wrap it up here, uh, gone beyond speculations about futures and pasts, having passed by, <laughs> um, passed by speculation, passed by any clinging, passed by the states of mind that are attached to grasping aversion and ignorance. Fully released from all sense media, and that really is ultimately going to be the end of the ninth fetter restlessness, I'd say, <clears throat> and, and really the end of it all. He would wander rightly in the world or wander through the octave as a guardian in the end. <laughs> Seeing the opened up when his effluence this is mental asravas, mental distorted flow. When his abandon, his asravas are abandoned from the ending of all acquisition. <clears throat> no more craving. No more clinging. No more poison. And that's the end of that. And that's the end of the path. And that's the end of the octave. And that's the end of samsara. And that's the 
end of um, <clears throat> any kind of roof or floor or bucket bottom and um, the one one becomes the one or returns to um, the fullness of the one uh, beyond duality and unity beyond um, ignorance and any form of vidya <clears throat> beyond restlessness uh, beyond light transluminal transluminality beyond um, beyond the created back to the source which sometimes could be called God or the Logos or Logos or um, Intelligent Infinity or Eighth Density um, you know truth is found in many sources it's important to bring them together so <laughs> that's it uh, I think that really um, it's quite a quite a sutta here and um, it's it should be remembered <laughs> that Gautama was speaking to Brahmas and Devas or higher dimensional benevolent beings and um, that's why I think there's such concision concision or pith um, pith presentation of teaching and <clears throat> I hope you liked it next time we will go to the 14th this is class 30 but next time we go to the 14th sutta of second chapter Dhamika sutta um, Tanasara writes it up as proper code of conduct for lay followers of Dhamma or lay Buddhists or us not being monks um, proper way of living or guidance for right living um, you'll remember that uh, long ago there was the Brahmana Dhamika Sutta and that was the Dhamika of the Brahmins this is just Dhamika or the way of um, living Dhamma in thought, word, and deed um, appreciating or making making use of Gautama's teaching for non-monastics so <clears throat> I hope that was helpful <laughs> Thank you for being here. I hope you are also well. Um, please take good care of yourselves. See you next time, and good night.